Welcome to the East Main Media Podcast, a series of conversations featuring leaders in a variety of subjects, including business, politics, media, and the arts. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com forward slash podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. Visit jlc-accounting.com. And by Tap Into TV, original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net. Now here's your host, Brian Brodeur. Thanks for joining me, Don Grossinger from dongrossinger.com. So tell me, how did you become a mastering engineer? You weren't trained in a professional school for this, were you? No, no, no. Uh, quite the contrary. I happened into it out of complete circumstance. My background, however, everything I had done before mastering sort of laid the groundwork for mastering, although I didn't realize it at the time. I had been on the air on a radio station, a freeform radio station, which uh, had no limitations as to song selection or, or what have you, style, format, whatever. So I was listening to all different kinds of music. I was also doing a lot of live sound in a number of venues in Washington, D.C., among them Blues Alley, The Cellar Door, The Child Harold, The Bayou, and others, where I was treated to a wide variety of acts ranging from 20-member big bands with horns all the way down to uh, solo singer-songwriters with an acoustic guitar. And what I had to turn out, my final product, was a two-channel stereo finished mix. So in providing that mix, it gave me a concept of how a final two-channel stereo master should sound. And how I got into mastering was a total, like I said, total coincidence. I had gone to see a friend who was a singer-songwriter, and she was playing at a club in Greenwich Village. I walked in. She said that her boyfriend was going to be there in 20 minutes, and he was. And 20 minutes after that, I found out that he owned a mastering studio. I needed a job because the studio that I was working for went out of business, and I got a job starting out in a mastering facility called Frankfurt Way Mastering Labs. It was a a well-known place. I was very lucky to happen into this particular individual at that juncture of my life when all the uh, stars aligned. And basically, after doing work in Washington, D.C. and being somewhat famous on a small-scale level, being on the air DJ and all that, I went back to doing the vacuuming, emptying the trash, and cleaning up. It started from the very bottom, and I was trained by some of the best mastering engineers in the business. And that's basically how I got into mastering. I went from cleaning up to operating the tape duplication facility. So I did analog tape copies, and then I started apprenticing in the time-tested manner in the studio with the engineers and being an assistant. And then eventually, before too long, picked up the skills that I needed, and I got my own room my own mastering studio, and then went on from there. Excellent. So there's a lot of ground we can cover. I wanted to touch on one immediate topic that I would like some feedback on. We'll come back to a little bit of some of the specific projects you worked in, and I wanted to follow up about, you know, the current state of mastering. But 
Would you address this for me, please? I'd like to know your input on the value of mastering, of the mastering process for the independent artist. Because there's a scenario of a mastering engineer or or the recording process where people can think of the artist as in the big name studio and they come out and the two-track master gets sent over to the mastering house and they you know, put their special sauce on it and, and it goes out the door for the two million copies manufactured. Okay, well, that is not the everyday experience in our business. The audience I'm trying to speak to on this recording, this interview, and this effort is the independent artist. And I'd like your input regarding what the mastering engineer can bring to, or the mastering process can bring to the independent artist's release? Well, it's pretty straightforward. I think nothing is more important these days than having your independent project mastered by an independent mastering engineer. Most of my business these days is dealing with singer-songwriters, small labels, bands who want to put a CD out for uh, sale at their shows, that kind of thing. And I'm really happy to be uh, servicing that part of the market because that seems to be where a lot of the action is these days, and there's a lot of very talented people out there who are making recordings. Now, that being said, the recordings are being made sometimes under not such great acoustical conditions in rooms that have acoustic signatures that might not be desirable. They might provide a master to me that has too much bass or not enough, that has a lot of sibilance to it, a lot of the harsh S sounds that isn't clear. It's kind of muddy and needs to be given definition and clarity. And all these things are possible by use of an independent mastery engineer because of a situation where there is perspective. The mastery engineer comes in after all the songwriting, after all the recording and mixing is done, and then using a fresh perspective in a room where known decisions can be made that translate well to the outside world the mastering engineer can do that and make as many or as few changes as possible to the program to get it to be competitive and up to snuff, you know, sound as good as it can be. All the best mastering engineers will enhance the music and keep their sonic signature out of it as much as possible. We're here basically just to serve the music and get things done so that it sounds right on all kinds of systems. Got it. Excellent. Thank you. Now, here's a really good segue. So when I was young, the concept of what the mastering engineer did was somewhat of a mystery. You know, my concept of the studio was growing up for me in the 70s and into the 80s, you know, knowing that, wow, there was a big console and it had faders and there were people on the other side of the glass and they recorded and you could play it back and mix it. And I think general public, they realized that is the recording process or the recording studio. But the environment and the process and equipment even of the mastering engineer is much more of a mystery. So I would like to elicit two answers from you. One is the short answer, meaning if a young person, meaning even a high school student or younger came up and said, what is a mastering engineer? Meaning they have an idea of the recording studio, but 
they don't know what that room is like and what the mastering engineer does physically. Can you give a very layman's explanation to what that is? Yeah. If you're recording and you're in a, a band or a, if you're a singer-songwriter and you record on your own in your living room, garage, nearby uh, club, what have you, you're just not sure of exactly what you've got on the master tape. Because I work in a known space that I am so very familiar with, I've been using the same studio area for close to 25 years now, and I know what happens when I make changes in the signal if necessary to make something sound good, how it's going to sound in the outside world. If you master on the same system that you record on in the same room using the same equipment, you're bypassing that perspective. You're bypassing that clean, no frills, no, no, it's not no frills. Objective, unbiased. Yeah, you, you're not allowing yourself to have an unbiased look at that music. Everything you do is going to be colored by the fact that you're using the same room with the same sonics as you did when you recorded. And giving it to a mastering engineer brings it to a different environment that's known and well-established. So let me prompt you on this. The physical mastering room is different than a recording studio. Certainly the console area or the workspace is different. You're not sitting at a console with faders. And I'd like to specify some of the areas of manipulation that the mastering, and again, remember, this is for basics. So some of the the areas of manipulation that a mastering engineer uses, for example, equalization, compression, even I would imagine masters come in with phasing issues maybe. Can you speak to some of those very basic building blocks? Well, basically, you've given me the answer to an extent. I use equalization. I use compression. I will uh, get rid of those nasty, uh, harsh-sounding sibilants. But more than specifically what the equipment is, is how it's used. And you can align your equipment chain such that there are equalizers and compressors in various places. And because of where they sit in the chain, they will affect different parts of the music or the music differently. Plus, different equalizers and different compressors and outboard gear will have different sonic signatures. And the mastering engineer, being familiar with his equipment or her equipment, is going to be able to choose which sequence and which specific pieces of gear will benefit the music most. And you build a chain and you go ahead and master a particular piece of music. And if you have an album or a series of tunes, each one is going to have a different sonic signature. So you have to listen to each one specifically, keeping the entirety of the program in your mind so that you'll be able to make everything come out sounding unified at the end. Now, this leads us right to a little bit of the dive into equipment. So naturally, something you and I have spoken about before was you're not sitting around with a Guitar Center $400 Mackie EQ on this work. So tell me a little bit about not just your modern process. Obviously, there's a lot more computers involved these days than there was when you originally got in the business. But that's something you still have a firm grasp on is 
some of the more vintage technology, such as cutting vinyl and cutting lacquers. So can you bring us into when, let's start at the beginning. You know, when you first got into the mastering business and you were learning from these great talents like Tom Coyne and Herb Powers, tell us about what the technology was at that time. What was standard for the process? Standard was a couple of Sontec equalizers, which were five-band EQs. There were custom pieces that were made in-house. There were level controls that allowed you to change the volume of each game stage as you went through to make sure that nothing was overloaded. There was always a lathe in the room, and each room had at least one, sometimes two lathes, so that you could go ahead and cut masters from your music right there and there. And often test lacquers were cut, and these were sent over to the artists for approval or the, the labels for approval before the final masters were made. But the final product was, generally speaking, always records. We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting. Bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. Visit jlc-accounting.com. And by Tap Into TV, original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net. Now, here's a very interesting follow-up to that. When I listen back to, say, an album, some of my favorite albums, something like a Steely Dan or maybe even something like Paul Simon, I often think that the sound, the engineering of those albums and the mastering were very much in lockstep or what's the right word? Um, connected to the fact that these were it was a vinyl process, that this was lacquer masters getting you know manufactured as a vinyl playback, 33 and a third long playing records. Can you, with your engineer hat on, you know, with your, your ears, can you talk about how that world has changed, meaning that mastering engineers don't primarily master for vinyl, although there are people who have expertise in that, such as yourself and some other colleagues of ours, but most, and I think I can say that, most mastering engineers don't have a, a heavy connection to vinyl mastering. They're mastering for minus 0.1 brick wall limiting. That's a world that we live in a little bit. Can you talk about that difference, you know, mastering for vinyl and what kind of mindset you have as opposed to a fully digital path going out to, say, download or CD? Well, before I get into that part of the question, I want to just add something on that applies to the previous three questions. And that is that my most important piece of gear is my ears. And that's another benefit of taking something to an experienced mastering engineer is that they've listened to innumerable products over the years and each project sort of gets filed away and you learn how to deal with different sonic anomalies and you learn what sounds good on your system and how to make things work under all kinds of circumstances. So when it comes down to people talking about, well, I use specific equalizers or compressors or signal processing devices of other sorts, all that is to some degree unimportant. It comes down to your ears and how you go about using them. 
Now, as far as an emphasis on making a master form final rather than CD or digital use, actually, if you make a good master, you can cut final from a master that has been well prepared for CD use or for uh, digital download use or for higher resolution download use. I've seen many, many projects that have gone to vinyl, some of which would probably amaze you in, in that they got cut from masters that were originally intended for CD. If you can come up with a 24-bit, 44-1 sampling rate master, that would be wonderful for cutting vinyl with a couple of caveats here and there to suit the limitations of the vinyl media. But basically, you can use a digital master these days if it's well prepared to cut vinyl records. Which leads to our question moving on. The role of the mastering engineer in the modern recording process, is it an endangered species? I mean, do you see a threat to the mastering engineer in the future? Well, I don't really think so. I mean, for all the reasons that I've given so far, it is valuable to have an unbiased person listen under conditions that are known and having a variety of tools to use to perfect a recording. You can't replace that with somebody recording at home using just your basic software that you may have. There are definite benefits to having your work mastered. Not everybody may acknowledge it. Not everybody may know it. But I think 100% of the time, if I am presented with a master tape that somebody made, I can make improvements in it. And I often give free samples to people, new clients, to allow them to hear the difference of what they provide and what I can do with it. And in giving people samples of their own material, it brings right up front the value of a mastering engineer, and I believe that will continue to exist. Is there any advice you could give to the independent artist who more and more is recording not necessarily in the professional recording environment. More artists are recording at home. They're using sets of tools that are comfortable or affordable to them. In some cases, the technology is getting better. It's getting better sounding. But they may not be using the traditional, in the traditional sense, the professional equipment or trusted audio signal paths. Well, here it is. Listen on a wide variety of systems. Come up with a master that you think sounds good wherever your setup is, and then take it to three or four or five other places if possible. Come up with a big sound system, your car, your friends' homes, a good stereo shop if you can find one. Walk in during the daytime perhaps when they're not so busy. Take it to a different recording studio and put it up on their monitors. This will give you a little bit of perspective as to what you're doing and how it affects the music. Also, besides a variety of environments, practice is really important. I have been presented with a set of equalizers, a room setup that I have had no choice in equipment selection, but yet learning what each component in the chain sounds like can turn out a really good master because, again, I know what I'm going after. And that's very important also is to establish what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And that's, again, where listening in various places will help you. You'll be able to say that, well, it sounded good 
in my room, but I took it into the car and it has way too much bass. That might indicate to you that your listening room is not giving you enough bass response. You're jacking up the bass in order to compensate for it. And then when you bring it out to a system that should play it well, there's an excessive bass that you have to deal with. And so you have to learn how to compromise and where the cuts and boosts are and things like that. That's very true. That's happened to me back in the day using two-inch tape. We mixed a project, and even though uh, we felt pretty comfortable with our listening environment, one pair of our main monitoring speakers were a little too bass-heavy. So when we brought it out to other environments, we heard there wasn't enough bass. We thought there was, and there just wasn't. That's an excellent point. I wanted to focus a little bit on your lacquer experience and your, your vinyl cutting, you know, your lacquer cutting. You know, in the pre-digital era, the job description for a mastering engineer usually involved the ability to cut a lacquer master. Tell me a little bit about, well, number one, if, if I'm correct about that, but tell me a little bit about that experience. And of course, I am speaking of your deep experience cutting lacquers for everybody from Miles Davis to Paul McCartney to even your more recent work. This is not completely history with your incredible work with Brian Wilson on his Smile project in recent years. Tell me a little bit about that that lacquer history. Well, I, I love cutting lacquers. I love getting a physical product that I can hold and look at. And if you look at a groove cut in a lacquer under a microscope, you can actually see visually what the music will sound like with enough practice. It's a very physical thing. It's not like a digital final product, which is all ones and zeros, and you can't actually see at all what it is that you're looking at. So lacquer cutting has been a part of my career ever since I started. That was one of the first things that I learned how to do when I advanced out of the uh, tape room. They put me on a lathe and let me uh, practice a lot and cut, and I learned how to use it. Cutting lacquers is a very demanding thing. There are physical limitations to the whole process, which you have to take into account. You have to make sure that, for example, for maximum volume, the size of the groove can accommodate the music and the level that you're trying to put on the record. So there's, there's all sorts of factors that are involved with learning how to cut. It's something that not many people do these days. It used to be that every mastering engineer was also a cutting engineer. But with the advent of a lot of digital processing and computers and home setups and all that, it's no, no longer the case. I'm familiar with a story, and tell me if you know of this or if you would comment on it, where early in the Beatles' career, after they were coming out of their early albums and they were transitioning towards Rubber Soul and Revolver, that Paul McCartney wanted more and more of a robust bass sound and consistently wanted it higher in the mix, of course, a very melodic player. He wasn't just holding down eighth notes, you know. So I was often familiar with the story handed down that he would put so much bass in the mix that it was making it difficult for the mastering process for them to cut lacquers at Abbey Road EMI, that they actually then put a limiter on his bass channel or his at least his bass frequency do you know or can you corroborate any of that? What do you know about that? Yeah, well, the British, I'm given to understand, and I've spoken to uh, Jeff Emmerich, the Beatles engineer, about this. 
and Jeff started as a cutting engineer as well. So he, he understands the whole process. And the British were very conservative in their cuts. Paul McCartney was listening to James Jamerson, the, the legendary bass player for uh, Motown. And Motown was getting somehow a lot more bass, and that's exactly the situation you described. They were getting a lot more bass on the records, and it was melodic, and it was beautiful, and it added to the, the song in ways that McCartney's bass at the time could not handle, or, or the recordings of McCartney's bass could not handle. So basically, yes, they did figure out eventually how to use a limiter, but what it came down to after a while was that EMI studios were not sufficiently daring enough to push the equipment to its limits, and the Beatles eventually went to Olympic Studios and other outside of Abbey Road Studios to record and to cut because these new places, which were independently owned and operated, had engineers that were more likely to push the envelope and get closer to what the client wanted in terms of base and other parameters. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for part two of the conversation. This has been a production of East Main Media, hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to audio engineer J.P. Conk and senior producer Kayla Galka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.